have your Bibles there, would you like to uh, turn with me please to Matthew chapter 16. And we're commencing at verse 13 and we're going to read through to verse 20. Matthew 16, commencing at verse 13. If you'd like, you can follow along with me on the screen behind me. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is God's word to us this morning. Let's ask him to be our teacher today. God, we are thankful again for this opportunity to come together around your word and to be taught by you through your Holy Spirit. Today we ask that you speak very clearly to us. Help us to see this morning in this passage something first and foremost of the identity of Christ, of Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of the living God but also to see not only in uh, who Jesus says he is, but the Lord, what that means for us in our own lives living today. What does it mean for us to be able to say that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? And we pray that you would uh, bless us in this time together. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when we uh, look at the uh, the state of the church around us today, you know this uh, church in our own you know, current context and and climate, I think for many of us we, we we get a bit of an image of this institution that is under attack and in many ways seems to be crumbling around us in our society. Many people would uh, would see today the church as being outdated and irrelevant. Peter, you got the uh, the thing working there? Yep, there we go. It's a bit of a uh, graph over the past, uh, say, 20 years or so that speaks about uh, you know um, the importance of religion in people's lives here in Australia. As you can see, you know, back in uh, through the 1994 and 98, 
that uh, you know there was a reasonable amount of uh, of people around about almost 25 percent. So it's one in four who saw the church and religion as being very important in their lives. But of course, as you go across the graph, you see that line diminishing, and the line, the green one, which which uh, says people really don't see it as that important at all, really has increased quite significantly. Of course, we don't have to, uh, you know, sort of look at graphs to be reminded of that, do we? We've only got to see it in our current uh, climate today. Of course, the church is seen by many, as I said, to be outdated and irrelevant, but it's also viewed by some to be harmful to society. Churchgoers are becoming fewer. Christians are on the defensive. The influence of the church appears to be diminishing rather rapidly in our society but not only in our society, in our nation, but across the world, and particularly the Western world. It's under attack from without and from within. So when we read these words of Jesus where he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, and what are we to make of them? What are we to make of those words, particularly in light of what we've just spoken about in terms of the church in our current context today? I mean, did, uh, did Jesus get it wrong? Were Jesus' words just a matter of kind of like a, a, a bravado, you know, just a kind of like a, um, you know, a, a bit of a motivating speech given, you know, by a coach to his, uh, to his, you know, to his team, to his followers that, you know, sort of, you know, church, churches sort of, uh, sorry, coaches give those kind of motivational speeches at the beginning of a big game crisis sort of given this motivating speech to kind of just, you know, get up, develop this excitement and this enthusiasm in his disciples? Is that the kind of way we're to take these words today? Or have we, as the church here in the West, of something important and significant that Christ wants to remind us about again today? It's interesting, when we consider the context that Jesus actually spoke these words in, it's a context that's not that dissimilar to our own. We live in a post-Christian society. In Jesus' day, he was living in a pre-Christian society. Jesus was speaking into a culture that uh, was very much full of idolatry and the worship of, of other gods. As we look at these words together this morning... We need to see that they take on an even greater significance for us who are living in this post-Christian culture because the fact that they give us, these words of Jesus give us a renewed encouragement and hope in our efforts to proclaim the gospel in such a society today. Here in Matthew 16 we read that Jesus has taken his 12 disciples to the region of Caesarea Philippi there in the northern part of Israel, right almost on the very northern borders of Israel, the borders of, of Lebanon. There's a bit of a map there that you can see. The red arrow points to where the region we're looking at. Caesarea Philippi is known today as a, a, an area called Banias. It's at the foot of Mount Hermon, one of the highest mountains in, in northern Israel there. And uh, it's a, a region that is uh, wonderfully, uh, uh, um, it's very beautiful, but it's also it was a, uh, an area which uh, is very, very significant because it was... It was a, a, a region that, were, that had with it in it uh, the, uh, the, the source of the Jordan River, the spring, a spring that was the source of the Jordan River. And this spring particularly welled up in this huge, big cave. Here is the, uh, here's this particular region uh, today. It's a photo taken uh, in recent times. 
because it was a place that was the source of the River Jordan or the source of water, it was viewed to be a place that was, was, uh, was really significant in terms of life and fertility. It brought life to the land. And because it was seen as such a place as this, it became a place that, we, that was very, very popular with people who had come to, uh, to worship the false gods, to worship the gods of, of nature and the gods of fertility and things like that. The worship, uh, sorry, in that particular region, there was, uh, in Jesus' day, there was a number of temples that were constructed at this site. It's a bit of an artist's impression of what, uh, what it might have looked like in Jesus' day. As you can see, there are several temples there. The temple on, uh, on your left is the temple to uh, Caesar Augustus. It was a, a temple dedicated to the worship of the emperor of the day. Uh, the, the one in the, uh, the middle was a temple to the Greek god Pan. And Pan was very, very significant in that particular culture because this worship of Pan was the kind of like the in religion of the day. Very, very uh, popular amongst the people. It was viewed as being, you know, the uh, the religion that uh, that people who really were switched on spiritually were really involved in. And Pan was supposed to be the god of the forests, the god of the pasture, the, the god of the flocks of the of the uh, sheep and, and goats and things like that, and was viewed to to dwell in grottos or caves. Hence the uh, the temple being here in this particular place where this huge big cave was. And as the god of you know flocks and, and animals of, of uh, you know and that sort of thing, it was it was Pan the, his his province to increase them and to guard and to watch over them. And so you can see that he would have great appeal to a people who made their living from the land, such as the Israelites. So the cave at this particular some of some of the other uh, um, worship uh, sites in this particular uh, next to this particular cave you can see some of the uh, things that are carved out of the rock there where they would sort of place idols and they would bow down and, and worship them. The cave at this particular uh, um, location near Caesarea Philippi was considered to be an entrance to the underworld. Now, the underworld in uh, uh, in, in New Testament in New Testament times, as we look at the Bible, the underworld was referred to as Hades, the place of the dead. And the people believe that the gods, such as Baal in Old Testament times, because this used to be a centre of, of Baal worship back in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament times with Pan, they would enter the, these gods would supposedly enter the cave and go down into the underworld for winter. Kind of like their winter abode, if you like. And through the acceptable sacrifices and offerings, when it came springtime, they would then come back out again to, in order to bring, you know, life and 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 flourishing again to uh, to the region and to uh, you know to the land as uh, as spring emerged. So Jesus brings his twelve disciples here to this heathen centre of worship. It's an interesting place for Jesus to bring his disciples to, isn't it? Hmm. This place that symbolised everything that was spiritually evil and spiritually dark. A place that that stood opposed to the very truth of God and his kingdom. Jesus brings his disciples to this place. And here at this place, Jesus asked them a question. Again, we see that here in our passage this morning, verse 13. Jesus asked his disciples... Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Jesus says, Who is it that people are saying I am? 
You know, Jesus for the last you know few years has has had a, a preaching and teaching ministry all throughout Israel, the northern and the southern parts of Israel. He's, he's, he's done in, you know in, incredible miracles in healing people and you know feeding people with you know small amounts of food, large crowds. He's you know brought demons out of people and he's uh, you know he's he's had this uh, this you know he's come on the scene and, and people are just amazed at, at his abilities and his teaching and his the authority of his teaching. And so he says to his disciples. Who is it that people say that I am? As we can see in the passage, they respond by saying, well, some actually say that you're John the Baptist, come back to life. John the Baptist himself was seen to be a great prophet in Israel. Others say that he was Elijah. Others saying Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. In other words, Jesus, people are kind of saying that you've got this, you know, you, you're, you're a lot different to, 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 to many other people. You kind of stand out as a, as a prophet of God. Someone who's is about doing the works of God in your life. Kind of got this impression of Jesus that, you know, he's, he's a fairly significant religious person. But is he just that? Is he just that? Well, then Jesus shifts his focus to his disciples and he says, well, let's move on from what others say I am. Let's actually get to the, to the real core, or the real heart of things, shall we? Who is it that you say that I am? having spent the last three or so years with his disciples, they, they being with him 24-7, witnessing all of the, the works that he had done and all of the teaching that he had given, the, the kind of person that he was, being able to live in the very presence of Jesus you know, for that amount of time, in that close proximity, in that intimacy. Jesus wants to get to the heart of the matter with his disciples. Guess who, guess who pipes up? Peter. He wasn't bashful, was he? He was a man who often spoke his mind, who just, you know, he sort of wore his heart on his sleeve kind of a guy. Peter says to him, he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And to which Jesus responds, You know what, Simon? He says, You are dead right. In fact, he goes on to say, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, Peter, you know what? You could not have gained this particular knowledge of my identity just through what others have said about me. You couldn't have just picked that up just through what others were saying about me, but, but it had to be spiritually revealed to you that I am indeed God's Christ, God's anointed one, his Messiah, that he, that he is indeed the son of the living God. That is a spiritual uh, um, revealing in Peter's mind and in his heart as to the identity and the character of Christ. 
It's got to be the same for us too, folks. We can know all kinds of things about Jesus. We can learn about Jesus from what it says about him in, in the scriptures. We can learn about you know, what, what other people say about Jesus, what I say about Jesus from the pulpit here, what others, our friends, you know, say about Jesus, what the world says about Jesus. But ultimately, we have got to be confronted with the question ourselves to, and, 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 be, and actually decide for ourselves who is it that we say Jesus is. And for us to be able to see that he is indeed God in the flesh, that he is indeed God's appointed king over all things, that in itself has to be revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. We cannot gain that just from human knowledge. In his confession, Peter was declaring his heartfelt conviction that Jesus was God's anointed king and that as the son of the living God, he was God by very nature. That as the living God, he was, he was the living God as opposed to the, the dead and dumb idols that's, that surrounded them, sorry about that, that surrounded them there in that place all of the temple worship and all of those idols that were there in those little rock crevices and stuff like that. God, you are different to all these kind of gods that these people are worshipping. They are dead and dumb gods. You are the living God. You are real. And Peter was enabled to see through Jesus' veil of humanity, he was able to see the glory of the only begotten of the Father. He was convinced in his heart that this is who Jesus was. didn't come as a response to a, a miracle that Jesus had done. So Peter wasn't caught up in, in the emotional sort of, you know, sort of um, uh, um, excitement and that sort of thing that, that, that obviously went, went with Jesus' miracles and things. This was a calculated decision on Peter's part. And Jesus He says, And I tell you, you are Peter, meaning little rock or stone. And on this rock, he says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. words here, this name Peter meaning, meaning rock or little rock and that on this rock, Jesus says. We don't sort of pick it up in the, uh, in the English translation. But what was Jesus referring to when he was speaking about this rock? What rock is he going to build his church on? You know, over the years different uh, Christian traditions have viewed that rock as a little bit differently. Some have actually seen that rock as Peter himself and believe that the church is actually built on Peter as the foundation. That he is the, the one who was given authority to be the head over the church. As he goes on to say that, you know, he says, I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So they've given this, this place to Peter in their kind of uh, theological understanding where he is the one where the church is built on. 
and then this succession of people who came after Peter as the ones who were rulers over the church in this world today. They've got it wrong. Not only do I think they've got it wrong, I'm convinced they've got it wrong. Jesus wasn't saying, on you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. But what I'm going to build my church on is the the confession that you have given here today. It will be that confession that people, as people come to that spiritual understanding of who I am as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and confess me as Christ, as Saviour, as Lord, it will be through those people that I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Christ could have also been very clearly referring to himself as well as the cornerstone, the capstone, if you like, of the church. Because we read in 1 Corinthians 3 that he is indeed the foundation stone of the church and that the church is then built on him and on the the preaching of the gospel. I will build my church, said Christ, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. It's interesting, the gates to a city were, were, were quite significant structures. Sometimes they were incredibly imposing structures. They were designed to be very strong in order to withstand enemy attack. It's one of the, uh, the gates in, uh, in Jerusalem. However, gates were also a matter, uh, were, were a place where, uh, where business was transacted or conducted, important business of the city. The elders would often, would often meet there and, uh, and conduct these matters. Matters of a civil nature were carried out, such as enacting laws and pronouncing judgments and things like that. In fact, the, these, the gates in Jesus' day were in fact a bit like our city hall today. They only symbolised power, but they also symbolised authority. And so standing there in that centre of pagan worship and idolatry before that cave, which was considered to be the very gates of Hades, the very gates to the underworld and to the dead, we see that Jesus and his disciples are surrounded by symbols of this power and strength and authority that false religion has, not only in Jesus, had in Jesus' day, but also has in our day today. And Jesus says, in the light of that, and in the face of that, Jesus says that he will build his church and such forces will not prevail against it. That's a powerful kind of image that Jesus has given to his disciples, isn't it? Can you imagine being with Jesus there in that place with all of this, you know, this false worship going on around you, all of these pagan religious practices and, and all of these people flocking there and, and caught up in, in all of the, 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 the cultural practices and that sort of thing of this, of this false religion and, and how it ruled people's lives and how it, how it dictated their lives and, 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 and what they gave their, their efforts and their resources and that sort of thing too. And there is Jesus and his disciples and he says, you know, in the midst of all this, as, as big and imposing as, as, as it is, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. 
In fact, my church will, will grow and will start to influence this kind of stuff to the point where it, it then dominates. Today we have this picture in our minds, don't we, of the church being assailed and attacked by the forces of evil. on this defensive kind of mentality, haven't we? That it's us against the world and we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll put the walls up and we'll huddle up back, back here in our churches and, 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 and in some ways be a little bit afraid of the world and be in fear of the world and, 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 and shake our fists at the world because of all the bad stuff that's going on around us but yet we'll, we'll want to be in our safe places. And we do it in our churches, we do it in our schools, we do it in our homes. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Let me ask you this question. Are gates offensive weapons or defensive weapons? to go and attack someone you don't do it with a gate do you well you might do but <laughs> depends on how big the gate is I suppose you don't necessarily consider a gate as an offensive weapon do we no gates are not offensive weapons they're defensive ones gates are used to keep people out and to secure people on the inside and so in Jesus's words what we see here is that it is not Satan's kingdom that is that is on the offensive but instead it's the kingdom of God that is on the offensive the kingdom of God is advancing against the tyranny and the evil of all this earthly idolatry and false religion that in that imprisons people and binds them up This stuff that seeks to keep them from the, from the liberating good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the glorious blessings of, of being reconciled to God and living with him as his children. So why is the church in seeming decline in our own context today? Could it be that as Christians in the West... Many of us have actually lost sight of the true identity of Jesus. Perhaps like others in Jesus' day, we see him as being a person worthy of respect and admiration. You know, a person who you know, is a great religious teacher or a great religious person like John the Baptist and Elijah and Jeremiah in Jesus' day. You know, the people sort of hold Jesus in a bit of high regard because he was a great moral kind of person, a great moral teacher. You know, he certainly had an impact in, uh, in, in history for sure. Do we hold Jesus just in that kind of regard? He actually doesn't give Jesus that rightful place. in relation to his identity. 
it's not enough to see Jesus just as some impressive kind of person in human history. It's not enough just to see Jesus as someone to be admired. It's not enough to pay Jesus lip service. To say that, you know, oh yeah, we believe in him. And we read his word. And we go to church. And that we've responded to him as saviour. We're thankful for him for forgiving our sins. What about when we consider that name Christ, that term Christ? It's not Jesus' name, by the way. It's not his surname. It's a title. And Christ means king. Do we see Jesus as king? That's what we must do. Be the people in our society today look at us as the church. And they see people where they've got this belief in Jesus, but they actually don't see Jesus actually having that much of an impact on their lives. In fact, we as a church just go about living our lives very similarly to how the world lives today. It's really, really hard to tell us apart. So if we're we're proclaiming the name of Jesus to our world and yet he really doesn't have that kind of, any kind of real significant impact on our lives, then really what's the world going to think about that? They're going to think, well, really, he's not that important anyway. If he's not important to you, then surely he's not going to be important to us. Perhaps today we need to be confronted afresh by Jesus and consider his question again. Who do you say that I am? Can we honestly, along with Peter, declare that you are the Christ God's anointed king, the son of the living God? Is he the one who is the most precious to us above all else? Is he the one who alone is worthy of all of our praise and our devotion? Is he the one to whom we willingly and gladly bow our knees and submit completely and wholeheartedly to him and his ways? Is Jesus that person for you? First and foremost, to see Jesus as that person because Jesus wants to use his church to reach a broken and fallen and sinful and dark world. Jesus said that he will build his church. 
And he will do so on the basis of such a confession as Peter's, where he is affirmed as the Christ, King over all things, God himself in the flesh. Christ is going to continue to build the church in this community and in this city and in this state and in this nation and in this world. He will do so, but through men and women who are led and willing to make such such a confession as we see here on the lips of Peter. We've lost sight of the true identity of Jesus. But perhaps we've also lost sight of who we are meant to be as the church. Jesus, there with his disciples in that place in Caesarea Philippi, he's coming to the end of his earthly ministry. He knows that in just a few short weeks, that he will be crucified on a cross. His disciples will see that, they'll witness that. Jesus has just spent the last three years preparing his disciples for the mission that he has for them. Graduation time is just around the corner. Your mission is to leave here and to take on the very powers of the devil in the world in which you live. And you're going to see those powers displayed in a horrendous way very, very shortly on the cross. But then you're also going to see a greater power that is at work through Christ's resurrection. And as Christ imparts his Holy Spirit to his disciples at Pentecost. Edgy for all these, you know, for these past few years, I've prepared you for this. See all this before you, all this idolatry and pagan worship and that sort of stuff. My, I've been preparing you to then go out into a world and confront these kind of forces, this kind of power but with the power of the gospel. And the mission of the church hasn't changed. The mission of the church is exactly the same today as it was back then when he told his disciples that I will build my church. In our world today, the church is growing. Praise God. It's flourishing in parts of the world where people are taking seriously the claims of Christ. It is growing in places where as believers, just like you and me, take the claims of Christ seriously and then are used by him to confront the powerful forces of evil in this dark world. As we boldly stand up for the truth of God and his glorious gospel as we confront our world and the, the teaching and the philosophies of our world which, which are so opposed to God's kingdom and his ways. 
We've got a message to say, you know what, there is a better way. And so we, we confront the falsities of, of, of idolatry and, and, and false religion and we, we confront the powers of, of Satan head on in our world where we bring to bear the truth of God's word and the message of the gospel. We bring that to bear on, on situations and, and people's circumstances in our world and on, and on cultures and on, on things of our world, of, of, of um, you know, philosophies and things that undergird all the stuff that our world believes today. As we take it into places like education as we take it into places like, like science and medicine, as we take it into places like music and art, as we take it into places, whether it be our schools or our workplaces or our, our neighbourhoods, but we take the gospel in, we live it out in our lives as, as powerful demonstrations to the reality of Christ and we proclaim that there is a better way, there is a better kingdom to be a part of. Christ will build his church as we boldly stand up for the truth of God and his gospel. As we ourselves are transformed by it to become more and more like Jesus. As we, through the power of the Spirit, seek to demonstrate Christ's love and his grace, his truth and his justice in our actions and by our word of mouth. Tell others this wonderful good news that there is true freedom and life to be found in Jesus Christ and him alone. Folks, if we do that, then we will see the church grow. Church and the gates of Hades in fast retreat. Yeah, we are the church. We are the church. We are Christ's church. Amen. Amen. God is with us. And using the analogy from last week, we are not a cruise ship, we are an aircraft carrier. And in Christ and with his authority and power, we are called to confront these forces of evil and to help set captives free in our world today. This is why we do what we do, folks. This is why we exist as a church. And asking this question of his disciples, who do you say that I am? Jesus wanted to know exactly where they stood. Today, Jesus asks us the same question. Where do you stand with Christ? Who do you say that he is? Haven't done so already? Prayer that today will be the day where you draw a line in the sand. Bag of Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, there in the ground. Just thinking that Jesus is there 
E and to bless me. But that he has got a church to build and he wants to use you in the process. He wants not only to make you a part of it, but he wants you to help make others a part of it. Folks, I believe that it is time for the church in the West, and that means us, to get serious with God and about the things of God. Because I think for too long we haven't. For too long we've been happy just to just cruise along. He has a church to build. Jesus has a church to build. Are you with him? Those words that we read on the page in our Bibles come to life and they stand before us as people here in this place, living in Marumba Downs here in, in 2018, they come off the page, they stare us in the face and they say, who do we say that Jesus is? And they call us to a response. And my prayer is that that response will be the same response as Peter gave to you on that day. That you are indeed the Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That you are the one who indeed has the right to all authority over me and over my life. the son of the living God that in you and in you alone is life and real life true life a life that is full of purpose and glory and blessing we drink deeply of that life that you have given to us a life that we want to live out and share with those around about us You have said you will build your church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Help us no longer to be on the defensive, Lord Jesus, but instead in the power of your Holy Spirit and with your authority you know, firmly over us as your church, we will go and we will indeed storm the gates of Hades, that we will storm the bastions of evil and darkness in this world today that we will be people who you will use to do that, to stand strong and firm for you. Not because we just want people to, to agree with us, but because of the fact that we want people to know you. To know your grace and your mercy your compassion and your kindness and your care but ultimately to know your truth and to praise you Amen